Well, if you haven't been with us for a while, or if you are with us just for the first time, we are in a consecutive expository series in the book, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, consecutive expository, that means we're taking it piece by piece, not, not cherry-picking and jumping over difficult things. We're trying to take it all. And boy, are we dealing with a difficult part of one today in chapter 16. Uh, but God helping us, we'll be able to, to grasp that and understand and apply it, hopefully, faithfully uh, in our lives, uh, as the Lord would have us do as we consider uh, the topic of money matters and more. That's the uh, uh, today's out, uh, outline, uh, so to speak. And we are in Luke chapter 16. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 18 is our scripture reading. You can look in your Bibles in the pew or you, if you have them with you or your device. Um, and I will be reading them now, Luke 16, verses 1 through 18. Remember, this is the word of the Lord. Hear it with careful appreciation and attention. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be my be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, 
Who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides always. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult passage for us to comprehend. We're a long way from the way that things were spoken. The things that were used to express thought. And yet, Father, we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit. You've given us a great rabbi in your son. Father, I pray that you will be our teacher today. Help us understand and discern the important things that we need to take from this passage today. Will you help us? Leave us not to ourselves, but send the Holy Spirit to help us. And we pray In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as I've already suggested, if Luke 15 contains some of Jesus' most famous and accessible parables, and it does, look one chapter later, chapter 16, and it contains some of the most obscure and confusing parables elements in it. If, if Luke 15 was one of the easiest in, to grasp and understand, this is one of the harder ones. This is one of the ones that we have to scratch our head sometime and go back and let me read that again. Or we're, we're dealing with a metaphor or a word picture, something that makes us from our distance hard to understand what exactly is being said. The chapter opens in Luke 16, in our passage, 1 through 18. It opens with the master telling this parable to his disciples. That's important that you understand. It's his, his disciples. He's not now. He has been talking, and he will talk again today to the religious leaders. But now he's talking to his own. His followers, those who are professing to be his disciples. 
And today, the focus of Jesus shifts toward the new values of the kingdom that Jesus had come to bring. Jesus was bringing a new kingdom, a new age, a new time of the kingdom of God coming to earth. He was the one bringing it. And the Lord in his teaching, he is teaching what is valuable and what is not. There are many people that are spending time on things that are not valuable. Jesus is wanting to make sure his disciples get it and understand the value of the kingdom that he is bringing. And it is very different than the kingdom that the Pharisees and the religious leaders are trying to build. Jesus is on another plane bringing the kingdom. Now, for some time, Jesus has been teaching about, as I said, the radical reversal that the kingdom will bring. When Jesus came, he started saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, he was really saying, I am here because I am the king of the kingdom of God. I'm the one bringing the long-promised kingdom. And he says, when it comes, it's going to shake, rattle, and roll a lot of things. It's going to bring many things People are going to be confused, dazed, and lost because the kingdom is going to be different, so different than what they have been experiencing under the religious leaders in the past. Christ is now coming to bring light and life. And in this world that we live in now, there is one thing that tends to top all other interests. All other values, that's the value of money, of money. And that is what is in view. Jesus is saying, in this world of money, we know it's an ultimate measure. But Jesus has come to put it in its proper place. Yes, there is a place for money, even in the kingdom of God. But how we use it and what we do with it, that's what Jesus wants us to grasp and understand. It is not ultimate. It is important, but not ultimate. Money and how we view it and how we use it has a direct bearing on what we will face in eternity, according to Jesus. Now, here's the outline for today. Stewards, by the way, the the text in our our reading in the ESV said manager, money manager. That's what that's talking about, the steward. Those who steward or take care of money. Stewards must be, first of all, shrewd. Secondly, they must be faithful. And thirdly, they must be obedient. So that's your outline. Obedience. Faithfulness and shrewdness going backwards, okay? All right. Stewards must be shrewd. That's in verses 1 through 9 of our scripture reading this morning. The story, as I've already suggested, is probably one of the most difficult passages in all of Luke. 
Uh, its point is, in, in the main, is pretty clear. It's basically saying we need to be good stewards who are responsible with the resources that God gives us in this world. That part's, you know, kind of comes to the top of the, of, of the, the cream comes to the top. But how it makes that point, how does what we read, how does that fit? That's where it gets a little bit difficult. It gets a little challenging. And again, things are used that we're not as familiar with. Now, the parable centers on a steward, as I said, money manager, was what we would say today, who is accused of wasting his master's goods. In other words, he's been, he's been slipping stuff on the side. He's been, he's been doing some uh, uh, stuff that is somewhat nefarious. He's been skimming off the top. He's been somehow finding ways to take some of his master's uh, money and use it for his own purposes, usually nefarious. And so, that's the situation. And for his unscrupulous behavior, that finally his master, the CEO, if you will, finally found out what he was doing and basically got ready, got ready and, and prepared for him a nice pink slip. Uh, that's what the CEO was in the process of doing. In other words, he's getting fired. But this guy's shrewd. He's, he's sharp. Before the paint dries on what is going down, he shrewdly devises a plan that would minimize the damage to the employer's accounts. He's been pulling from them, and now he's exposed, but he still is thinking of a way in which he can somehow kind of shift some of this over and get the ultimately get the employer himself where he has to go along with it. You notice you heard the settling of the accounts. You went to these two guys and basically said, okay, you, oh, you're under a, don't, don't, don't say right over that, scratch that out, do 50%. Well, guess what? That's going to be less for this uh, guy that's getting, being told do 50% because that means, hey, I don't have to give 50%. So he does that. And then next guy, he says, oh, what do you got? Oh, don't, don't do 100 just do 80. Do 80%. Well, what that, what's that going to affect? You see, the unscrupulous manager invoked the first principle of politics. And you know what that is? Always be generous with other people's money. Politicians are the most amazingly generous people on the planet. You know why? They're using someone else's money. They're going and telling you, oh, we're going to take care. We're going to take care of it all for you. Just vote for us. We'll get. See, that's where this guy was. And he was so sharp and so slick in the ways of the world. He got it where ultimately the employer got 
where he had skin in that game too. And so he couldn't do anything but ultimately say, you know, he's pretty sharp. He got me. I'm in this now. I've been entangled in this whole thing. He's beat us both at the game. And on top of that, furthermore, the amazing thing is these guys that he lessened their obligation to the master. What do you think that's going to happen when he gets in trouble and needs a job? Well, these people that he let get off and keep some of their money, they're going to be real inclined to help him out in the future. This guy was shrewd. This guy was an operator. So, you see, from a worldly wise point of view, his plan was brilliant. And even, as I said, his employer, when he heard about it, had to laud his business savvy. Now, Jesus then points out two things. Remember, this is a parable. You don't try to get too much out of a parable. Don't miss the big, the big point. Jesus, though, does point out two important facts. One, the employer and his money manager were both unprincipled in their dealings. This wasn't a good and a bad. They both were not flawless, shall we say. Secondly, they both were lauded for their worldly business acumen. They were lauded. They were even, even the employer had to give it to this guy. Had to give the devil his due, so to speak. Well, you see, this is not a prescription for our behavior. As you, as you listen in, in this text, Jesus is talking about the way the world does things. How it goes about getting its stuff and how it deals with people. Jesus is not, some people think, well, it sounds like Jesus is, is, is applauding this, this employer and, and, or this guy and saying, you know, no, Jesus is saying in the way that they operate, in the way that the, this world, the world that's passing away, not the world I'm bringing, but in this world, this is how they operate. You see, Jesus, I think, is being somewhat tongue and cheek. He's basically saying something like this. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this ironic that the people of this world are more astute than the people of the light? That's what he's saying. Now, who are the people of the light? His followers, his disciples. Today, we call them Christians. We're supposed to be the people of the light, and yet when it comes to trying to, we're not, we're not that sharp sometimes. We get had. We get bamboozled. But Jesus isn't concerned about that. He knows, ultimately, he wants them to focus on on the things which are going to carry over from this world into the world to come. 
and that are going to make a difference in this world now with faithfulness and obedience and some degree of shrewdness. You see, listen to this quote from uh, Mike McKinley. He said, at the end of 16.8, Jesus drives home this point, his point. The people who belong to the world and all its values, literally the sons of the age, know how to get what they want from other people through clever planning and activity. God's children, literally the sons of the light, however, sometimes fail to see how they can shrewdly use the things of the world for spiritual advantage. The citizens of the world know how to take care of their needs and make sure they get what they want. The dishonest steward behaves wisely according to the world's standards and the world's values. In other words, he's doing nothing wrong. It's just the way it operates. But in an analogous way, Jesus wants his followers to behave wisely according to the standards and values of his kingdom. Not what you can get away with. What can you do that are in the standards of Christ's kingdom and what he's teaching and what he's telling us to do? You see, we are to be kingdom shrewd with everything at our disposal. That's what Jesus is saying. Look, they're going to probably beat you more times than not. I'm not concerned about that. I want you to be shrewd, wise in the way you handle the resources I give you that are not just to be used for yourself, but for my kingdom and for my cause. That's what we did today. We brought our tithes and offerings. That's one manifest way that we do it. There are many, many others. You see, to gain friends by means of mammon, which is another word for money, is to use money in such a way that others appreciate you for the exercise of stewardship and generosity that you have. In other words, what Jesus is saying I want my followers to be good stewards, and I want them to express it through generosity for my cause and for my kingdom and for the needs of my people. He's saying, that's what I want you to do. That's, I don't care that you're the sharpest tool in the shed when it comes to Madison Avenue. I want you to be passionate about using your resources, knowing that you are just getting a little tiny sliver of what's coming to you as a child of the light. Because one day, you're going to be forever in, a, in great riches because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. So don't count it as if it's all here. That's what the world has got. They got this and nothing more. And when it's gone, and when they're dead and gone, there is nothing else. Yours will echo as a follower of Jesus Christ. What you do, if you are faithful, if you are obedient, and you are shrewd, it will echo into eternity. It will never end.
Jesus says, see the big picture, guys, gals. Stewards also must be faithful. That's 10 through 13. Jesus concluded his discourse stating that you cannot serve God and money. You've heard that, right? The story teaches that in the dominion of evil, all is fair in love and war. All is fair in love and war. And other realms in which there are winners and losers. Wherever there's winners and losers, there is going to be conflict. Make no mistake, this is how the world works. There's no middle ground. It's either this or that. Each person must choose the master he will serve. Jesus says that's not something you can make a choice about. You can't say, well, I'll have this one and this one. Well, I kind of like this one and I'll hold on to this one too. No, Jesus says you can't. It will not hold. It's going to break down. It's going to fall apart. It's you will serve me. You will serve God or you will serve money or it's other entities that are similar to it. You see, there is no middle ground. Each person must choose which master he or she will serve, money or the kingdom of God. Invest your money only in your own interests or in a very small group or in the interest of the kingdom of God which, as I said, will echo in eternity. Remember, as Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. You can't get around it. You will serve God or mammon. You will serve wealth or God. There is no in-between. And if you try to stay on stay on that, Don't wonder why things are not going so well for you. Finally, third point, stewards must be obedient. Stewards must be shrewd, they must be faithful, and they must be obedient. Verses 14 through 18 is that text. Now, in response to Jesus' teaching, the religious leaders were where? Always nearby. (laughs) They were always hanging out with the crowds and the disciples that Jesus was teaching, but they weren't there to be taught. They knew everything they needed to do. They didn't want to do anything but scoff and smock and laugh at Jesus. Literally, it says, the text says, they turned up their noses at Jesus. I can't believe this. Redneck rabbi from Galilee. You know, they, they could not, they, they despised him. They were always trying to get him. But Jesus now turns from his disciple who's, who's been teaching them and telling them about the importance of you can't pl- have it both ways. You'll serve God or mammon. Which is it going to be? Which one is going to be the long haul smart play? But now he turns his focus to the, to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. 
Jesus was undeterred and he continued to press the point of their self-justifying ways. And by the time Jesus got to this world 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came on the scene and started his public ministry, which we're in the middle of now, when that happened, these guys were constantly justifying. They thought they had the system already. And by the time Jesus is on the scene and is popular and drawing these great crowds, the religious leaders had made the law of Moses a joke. They had so turned it up and so qualified it and stripped it of things and added a bunch of other unhelpful additives. It was totally confused. These guys, these religious leaders, had made a joke out of the law of Moses. And the Pharisees claimed to stand firmly on the Old Testament Testament law. But it broke They turned around and broke the law, even though they claimed that they were the guardians of it. They broke it regularly, and they broke it with impunity. In other words, they they didn't, I mean, it was so egregious. It was so out there how they had changed the law of God. It was no longer the law of God. It was their interpretations, their add-ons, their additions. They were lax about applying the Old Testament laws, particularly in things like divorce. And because they wanted the approval of people so that they could control and get and basically handle the process. And some of the rabbis had gotten so far away from God's original standard of what marriage is and is supposed to be in the eyes of God. Some rabbis taught that a man could divorce his wife for something as minor as burning supper. Can you believe that? In other words, I want a divorce. Oh, really? Why? Well, because she burned burned supper tonight. Look at that. I can't eat that. All right, here you go. Bill, divorce. Moses said, take one of these. See, they had totally, totally turned the law of God inside out. And they were not interested in what God's original intent was. Jesus used divorce In verse 18, he brings it up. And interestingly, by the way, this is not the only verse. This is just one verse. So don't don't put a lot on it. Don't try to say, well, how do you get to this? And what about this? And what about that? There's a lot of other places that the scriptures talk about that subject. But right here, what Jesus is trying to say is, hey, guys, get out of the mud. Let's go back and see what God intended. That's the point here. That's what he's trying to get across in this this chapter uh, 18. Jesus used divorce to illustrate a law that transcended both the Old Testament law, the law and the prophets, and his gospel of the kingdom. 
Jesus is saying, I'm going to tell you something that was before Moses. And I'm also going to tell you something that is before my time. It, this is, covers all time. This is not one, well, here it works and there it doesn't. No, this is Jesus goes back further to explain before his coming and establishing the new kingdom of God and before even the patriarchs and Moses, he says it all goes back to the beginning, back to Genesis. You see, this administrative move from law to kingdom does not mean that the previous commitments are to be ignored. That's what the Pharisees and scribes were doing. They were ignoring. They were writing add-ons and, and uh, adding junk on top and doing it in a way that would get what they were looking for. But Jesus is saying we're going all the way back to the original intent. Listen to the, again, um, uh, Mike uh, McKinley. Uh, again, I've already quoted him once, but I think he really sums this up really well. Listen to this. Jesus' words here represent a more rigorous ethical standard than that which is contained in the Old Testament. When basically going back, as I said, to Genesis, this is God's original intent. The law contained regulations for how divorce should be handled so that the woman who was the most vulnerable party in the proceedings would not be destroyed in the process. In other words, a a law of Moses was granted for a purpose, but it was something like that, not the way they were doing it at all. But here, Jesus presses on his followers the expectation that they will seek to go beyond the law and comply with God's original intent for marriage. The arrival of the kingdom does not nullify the law. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus said, you nullify the law by your commandments. The arrival of the kingdom does not nullify the law, but transforms, here's the key, the heart of its citizens so they will long to obey God's will. He meant for it to be. Yes, there may be circumstances indicated, but he meant for it to be. And you guys, you Pharisees, you have totally destroyed. You have nullified the good word of the Lord through your traditions. He said you need a new heart. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Jeremiah You've got a, a picture here in Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. This is after in the days of exile. I will put my law within them. 
and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. See, what he's saying is, you Pharisees, you're hard-hearted. I meant, I gave this as an exception, but the intent is that you love that intensely and you need a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone if you're going to love others like that. That's what it's really all about. May God give us such transformed hearts to serve him shrewdly, faithfully, and obediently. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do need, Lord, such transformed hearts as the new covenant promised that you would give so that we would not find excuses and ways to accomplish our own purposes and ends, but that we honor you and your holy law that we be obedient and faithful and even, Lord, learn how to be more shrewd for the glory of your kingdom and the cause of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.